Welcome to the Asian Digital Supermovers interview series on Clubhouse, where we speak to experts, founders, and investors about the Asian digital economy and ecosystem every week. Monica, Mushir, and I, Pratish, invite guests for a conversation about building, scaling, and operating businesses in Asia. Follow our club on Twitter. Our handle is AD Supermovers for providing us any feedback and staying updated on interview series. Guests and topics. Welcome, Malaika, to the Asian Digital Supermovers AMA. Awesome! Thank you, Pratish, and thank you, Mishir, for inviting me as well. It's such a pleasure to be here, and thanks to everyone from for tuning in from all over the world. I'm super excited, and I'm really even more thrilled to be able to talk to you about Indonesia's tech ecosystem. Maybe I'll share a quick background about myself as well as about AC Ventures. So me, I joined AC Ventures after graduating from my master's at Imperial College London with a vision to contribute to Indonesia's already burgeoning tech ecosystem in search of the next big solution. So I primarily cover e-commerce, logistics, agriculture, and other lucrative consumer models as well. But our fund is sector agnostic, and we across we invest across different sectors, which also include fintech, B2B SaaS, edutech, as well as health tech as well. So, so my role is not only to help find the next best investments, a uh, next wave of entrepreneurs to back, but also to support our portfolio entrepreneurs in fundraising operations, business development, strategy, as well as team development. And our fund is an early stage venture fund, which is focused on investing in, in primarily Indonesia and, our, and the next wave of digital disruptors. So across our three funds, we've completed about 80 technology-enabled investments across in the past three six years, actually. And some of our well-known investments are PayFaz, Carsum, Mocha Post, which was acquired by Gojek, Coinworks, Warren Pinter, and many, many more. And we definitely take the time to leverage our industry insights, support services, local know-how, as well as our global network to empower these, these exceptional founders that we find in this region. Our partners have decades of experience in building businesses, especially in emerging, and we're definitely the type of VC that would want to be able to support our entrepreneurs be hands-on and provide valuable guidance as well. We do have a strong focus on impact and ESG because we believe that technology in Indonesia can actually catalyze change through really exciting solutions. For example, through empowering the underserved markets, through democratizing e-commerce access, supercharging financial inclusion, and increasing income for local micro-businesses, as well as creating access to education and healthcare. So that's a little bit about us. Happy to jump into some of the questions that you guys might have for us. Great, thanks. And just for everybody's uh, knowledge, we are recording this uh, conversation and we will be distributing it through our podcast as well. So I just wanted to put that out. Uh, sorry, I could not mention, I forgot to mention it earlier. So moving ahead, thanks for that introduction, Malika. I think let's just dive into it and understand. Can you just give us an overview of the Indian, uh, Indonesian consumer ecosystem in terms of the venture space as well as the industry trends? Yeah, absolutely happy to. So I think just to kind of paint a bit of a picture of, of where the venture investment scene is right now, to start with Southeast Asia, despite the hit of COVID, I think the Southeast Asia tech scene has definitely been quite resilient. According to data online, it still achieved uh, an $8.2 billion total investment in 2020, which is super duper exciting. And we also saw a new set of leading tech companies that were that became unicorns and also passed the $250 million valuation mark. What's super interesting is that 70% of this capital 
invested in Southeast Asia was picked up by Indonesia. So I was headed by the financing of a few mega deals. You might have heard of Gojek Bukalapak and many others as well. So that's quite interesting. And we've also seen that there's a there, we're seeing a trajectory towards leading tech companies pursuing IPOs. And I think we'll dive deeper into that uh, a little bit later. But yeah, that's essentially exciting because the recycling of capital and talent to the ecosystem will actually supercharge the next wave of technology opportunities. So I always say that we're just scratching the surface. And also along with that, what's also happened is that there's a maturing and sophistication of digital users that's happening. And the infrastructure is actually continuously improving to create the next wave of ventures. And also markets that seem mature, for example, like e-commerce, the penetration rates of total retail sales still account for less than 10% with the unicorns or the horizontal marketplaces accounting for only 5%. So we're still really, we haven't sort of reached our peak. And I think that what's interesting about Indonesia is there's, there's this unique complexity, which also creates true home court advantages for local platforms to actually become billion dollar companies and more. So that's quite exciting. But just kind of jumping into some of the key sector trends that we find really interesting. Maybe I'll start with e-commerce because we I mentioned that briefly. So e-commerce remains to be the main growth driver of the internet economy. And what's interesting is the expansion of e-commerce in 2020 actually offset the compression in other sectors. For example, travel, right? So um, what's, but at the same time, the penetration of e-commerce is still quite small, as I mentioned, less than 10%, according to our guesstimates. So that sector is, is, will continue to be interesting for us. Although I think the horizontal e-commerce marketplaces have reached certain levels of scale and are quite, that, that's, that particular segment within e-commerce is quite mature. I think we actually see that it's paved the path for other e-commerce verticals to actually create more category-specific and niche offerings, which is why we find categories like e-groceries, FMCG, beauty furniture, fresh, as well as automotive, quite interesting as well. And then because of the sort of maturity of where the horizontal marketplaces are, we still see that there is some, as I mentioned, low penetration of e-commerce, which means that there's actually a new kind of model that is trying to sort of um, tap into that that space and bring in the next wave of users through social commerce. So I think social commerce aims to tackle challenges in trust gap in bringing, because in Indonesians tend to be inherently social and tapping into that behavior is also a great way to bring users online. And at the same time, also give access to tier, give access to tier two cities with, with e-commerce and tackle challenges with logistics as well. Jumping into logistics for a second, which is another sector that we're quite excited about. We actually believe that e-logistics is one of the backbones of e-commerce, and it and it's important that it, it it's able to solve the bottlenecks in transportation and merchandise of merchandise as well. So ACVs invested in shipper and cargo, we actually want to target this pain point as well. And then we see some progress in fintech. So as more people bank online today, we actually see opportunities within different fintech segments, from payments to remittance to Sharia lending to insurance and wealth management as well. And it was super exciting to note, and I read this stat only a couple of days ago, financial literacy and access has actually grown quite a bit. So between 2010 and 2020, credit card penetration has grown from 0.6% to 1.8%. But what's also interesting is that between 2015, which is around the time e-wallet transactions kind of became a thing, between 2015 and 2020, e-wallet transactions increased by at least 108% per year, which is super interesting. But at the same time, we still see that 92 million people 
in Indonesia still haven't used the bank. So there's still a long way to go before we can actually provide further financial access to every user in Indonesia. And another sector, just to kind of quickly uh, sort of map it out, B2B or SME enabling technologies is something that we're really excited about. One of the pain points that we feel is, is interesting is this long chain of intermediaries that are disrupting the supply chain, which makes it quite difficult for mom and pop stores to procure with minimum quantities. And also the just the experience of that is it's, it can be the price arbitrage is also quite, it's something that we need to solve for as well. And then another thing is shortage of supply chain financing or lack of credit facilities. So SME enabling services that actually not only help, help mom and pop stores come online, but also help them procure. That's something that we found interesting. And with other sectors that include edutech and health tech, I think COVID has definitely accelerated and, and we saw accelerated these, these sectors and we saw this momentum there. And especially with health tech, with digital patient support solutions and, and telemedicine platforms, we definitely think that, that health tech is actually more poised for further commercial adoption. So I think those are some of the sectors that we've invested in and still continue to see opportunities in. So yeah, happy to kind of dive deep into any questions if you might have on that. Thank you very much. That's very interesting and insightful, actually. I'm surprised that the, the low penetration or the unbanked population of, of Indonesia I wasn't aware of it with such a high GDP compared to India. Why do you think is that the is that the reason that that such a big population is unbanked? And the second thing is that there is a huge number of digital wallets also in the in uh, Indonesian ecosystem. So can you just double click on those two points? Yeah. So just on sort of low e-commerce penetration and and why we're kind of behind uh, the U.S. and China there. What we see is that there still is an underdeveloped infrastructure, right? So if you, a significant number of e-commerce parcels actually are usually shipped from Jakarta or nearby, right? So it actually makes it difficult for logistics companies and and e-commerce platforms to lower logistics costs. And I think the unique geography also implies that you need a multi-model logistics approach for countrywide distribution. So there are multiple bottlenecks there. I think that also, that's on the logistics side and if you actually purchase something from, say, Tokopedia from a tier two city, very often the logistics price can be even equivalent to the price of the goods. So for them, that kind of deters them to shop online. Another thing is I realized off late that Indonesia is actually a powerhouse for manufacturing. And yet some items are actually, Indonesia is still not, if not, but doing very well with manufacturing finished products. So most consumer items probably except apparel, handicrafts and food products still need to be imported. So I think that additional cost for businesses actually is also pushed onto the consumers. So this lack of self-sufficiency, I think, brings change in brings challenges. So when there is like a trade disruption, say, for COVID, it can actually create a lot of supply inadequacies and mismatches. So that's something to think about. And I think while I think there is a growing middle class, the purchasing power in tier two cities are still significantly lower than we see the urban cities, although it's growing. So I think that has also kind of deterred that, that penetration to increase. And that's why for social commerce platforms that are tapping into rural, they have to make sure that they can match prices there as well, things like that. In terms of financial inclusion, I think a big part of that is actually financial literacy and getting people to understand that they can actually do so much with their smartphone 
they can access a lot of financial services, which is exactly why we invested in a company called PayFast that actually use offline agents to help educate users on the ground that they can actually participate in the financial scene through remittances, payments. And I think with e-commerce and fintech, they go so hand in hand. You need cashless payments and a strong payments infrastructure to further spur the growth of e-commerce. And e-commerce is also a great use case for fintech payments as well. So I think they go hand in hand and they are growing and getting better. But the interesting thing is we're still not quite there yet, which means there's even more opportunity to push that further and propel that growth. Great. Thank you very much. Before we move on, I just wanted to make an announcement. If anybody has any questions, do raise your hands and we can bring you up as we go on and deep dive further into this very interesting conversation. So moving on, I think you touched upon mature startups getting into IPOs. One of your own startups just did a very high unicorn valuation. And now, I may butcher the name, uh, Muka Lapak, that's correct. <laughs> Bukalapak, yes, correct. Yes, and they just went IPO and it was everywhere on the news, right? So uh, what what are your thoughts? So what was their journey? Why were they so unique and why is it such a celebrated uh, IPO? You know, I'm so glad you asked that question because I woke up yesterday super excited thinking today's going to be a great day. It's, gonna, it's a funny day outside and I get to witness a very crucial moment in, in tech, in Indonesian tech history, right? Uh, I opened my app and then at 9 a.m. watched sort of the bell go and then the next in the next six minutes the Bukalapak share price surged 25 percent and the next thing it became the 13th most valuable public company in Indonesia. So I think that this particular event definitely puts us on the map. I think it will create a snowball effect and clear the path for even more tech IPOs. And it also shows us that homegrown unicorns, local localized business models can have stellar, and it shows us that Indonesia is ready for these exits. It's a vibrant market and ready for homegrown homegrown multi-billion dollar companies. So, and I think that's, that's a really, really great precedence for sure. And what's so interesting about this particular IPO is that it's it's it doesn't end here, right? It's not like Bukalapak's plan was to go IPO and not penetrate further into the market. They still have some really interesting strategies at, at hand. Things like expanding product offering from physical goods to also include digital goods. Uh, things like with all the really interesting data that they've collected from mom and pop stores, from micro SMEs, they could actually use that to go back to the principles and negotiate better prices for mom and pop stores and allow them to create even better income levels for themselves. They are also looking to provide better financial services to improve monetization for these these mitras or micro uh, SMEs. Also including things like going beyond mom and pop stores that only sell FMCG products, but also tapping into other verticals like apparel, electronics, automotive uh, products as well to propel its growth further. And the final key thing that Bukalapak wants to do is reverse the game and actually bring these mom and pop stores online to actually sell on e-commerce platforms like TikTok, Shopee, Tokopedia, similar to Sh- uh, Shopify of the US, right? So I think what's interesting here is it definitely, you know, tells the world that Indonesia is a force to be reckoned with. It's not just that we have space we don't, it's not just that we have the market and the capital to actually go this far, but essentially it's telling us that even the, the public markets is ready for um, exits like this. So I think it's, it's definitely 
very, very healthy and exciting for, for Indonesia. And hopefully this will bring in even more foreign capital to, to the country. Brilliant. Thanks for that. Let me quickly reset the room. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Digital Supermovers. We are having a very interesting in-depth conversation with uh, Malaika from AC Ventures about the Indonesian venture capital space and how it has evolved and what are the key industry trends. The Asian Digital Supermovers, we have three founders, Mashir, Malaika, and me. We, every week, bring, as we call, OG experts, investors, as well as operators for AMAs to talk about the digital ecosystem within within Asia. So if you're interested in this topic, do follow the club by pressing the green house icon on the top. You can also follow uh, us on stage for similar conversations for you to contribute, have a chat with us. Or you can also, if you have a question, do raise your hand and come up on stage. Or you can also send me the question through back channel if you cannot come, come on stage. So moving on, how would you... So how do you make your investment decisions as you focus on early stage startups? It is a very competitive space, right? And the competition is not only homegrown, but you do see uh, competition coming from other markets, right? Mainland has a lot of investment as well as penetration into the Indonesian market. So how do you keep yourself unique and what do you see when you're investing in, in uh, young startups? Cool. So good question. I think you are right. The the sort of space of early stage investing has become very competitive for sure, but that's what makes it exciting. So for us, I think some of the key things that we look at when we're looking at early stage companies, and we're very sort of strong, we're very focused on this at the beginning is the founder background and, and team experience. Question is, do they lend themselves well to this opportunity from, you know, both an operational and executional standpoint? Do they have the right talents to fill any gaps they may have? Any subject matter expertise is always good as well. So that's probably the first thing that we look at. Then we spend a lot of time with the founder to understand if, if that they're the right fit for this particular market. So it's important to have product market fit, but it's also important to have founder market fit. So that's probably the first thing that we would look at. And because we do a lot of early stage investing, I believe that it's more thematic. So we need to spend a lot of time understanding our thesis on that particular category or model to really understand if it's a large enough time for us to consider and what are the different structures within that segment. So we spend a lot of time sizing the opportunity to understand if that particular business can be a billion-dollar business and if we can make the sizable fund returns from this opportunity. So that's important for us to look at. And then beyond that, we also want to spend time understanding Things like consumer trends, what are they trending towards? Is there any saturation towards any trend or category? Consumer trends keep changing, so we want to make sure that we're in time for those trends versus too early or too late. For example, with COVID-19, we actually saw the acceleration of adoption for e-groceries, and that's a space that's trending upwards. We want to make sure that we were on time for that, and luckily we were, so that was great. But um, I think timing is, is something we always take into consideration. And then just maybe moving one step backward, we also want to understand what the value proposition actually is here. What kind of pain points are they solving that current platforms or existing players are, are not solving at this present time? What really makes them unique? And then, of course, in the early stages, not everything is kind of set in stone. So for us as investors, we want to be able to preempt some of the key challenges that the platform might have. So it's important for us to understand what they also need to work on and fix, whether it's a supply chain that they need to streamline better, whether they've got a CAC issue, is there a solid plan to achieving their particular um, 
milestone that they're aiming for. And of course, we understand that at this stage, it will be unlikely to be figured out because there's a few facets of the business that are still lots of moving parts to it. But it's important for us to be able to preempt. And also, we Indonesia, I would say, is still a follower market where we do, le- do look at other emerging markets like China, India, and Latin America to preempt what the next wave of opportunities might be, but also what the challenges might be. So working with, with international investors is, is very, very important for us as well. So I think you, you were asking also a little bit about how we can kind of compete with, with these international investors that are coming in and really excited about Indonesia. I think first thing that I want to say is I don't think we should compete with them. I don't think we want to compete with international investors. And if anything, we want to be able to welcome them, right? Because in Indonesia, we actually have this interesting concept called Gotong Royong, which means working together. That was actually one of Gojek and Tokopedia's merger slogan or motto. So the whole idea is working together because when the capital markets have even larger pools of funds coming into Indonesia, it's actually mutually beneficial for all stakeholders in the ecosystem. It serves as a tailwind for companies to be able to say, for example, pass that Series B mark or build up companies to those billion-dollar valuations, right? So foreign capital is actually very important for us. And I think what's really interesting about Indonesia is the TAMs, right? Some markets within the internet economy is so large that there might not even be a winner-takes-all solution. So it's important to see funds flowing into that particular sector to show that there is a large opportunity there. It's, it's great validation that there is a powerful opportunity in, in a particular sector. And I think what I love about working with international investors, Reggie from Cafe is, is definitely one of them as well. It's always great to be working with an investor who have invested in similar business models in other emerging markets like China, India, Latin America, as I mentioned. I think their insights are incredibly valuable at helping us figure out our next, our next investments and also ensure that we're thinking ahead and planning for some of the challenges ahead as well. Great. Thank you that you answered, and that's a great, great response in terms of the international VC entrance into the market as well and how to work with them. I think then the other part of it is, and because as you said, late stage startups are now going IPO, they're maturing. Are Indonesian startups ready to scale outside Indonesia? Is the market saturated or there are certain businesses which can actually scale in other markets? Which markets would they, would those be? And, or they are not ready yet. I think that's a really great question. I think we've definitely had the whole regional versus local discussion very often. And I see it quite a bit on Clubhouse as well, especially with Goto, C Group and, and Grab. For us personally, given that we are Indonesia focused, we do tend to encourage our founders to think in terms of Indonesia first. I think it underscores the fact that if you notice, a lot of ventures starting in other markets in Southeast Asia would probably have to think regional from day one. But Indonesia itself, the market size continues to provide the depth for startups to scale to billion dollar valuations just by focusing on the local opportunity alone. Bukalapak is one example, but we also have Goto, Traveloka that are forging ahead of these listings as well. So what's interesting is the, the, the valuations are beyond what we could have imagined five to seven years ago. I think the TAMs are huge, especially potentially larger than others. Southeast Asian countries for some sectors. So I think the key fundamentals of Indonesia are still exciting. It will continue to drive adoption. As I mentioned, penetration for e-commerce is still very low. So even in mature markets, there's still ample room for growth. If how to crack it, I think that 
we do see some of our portfolio companies do regional expansion, and some of them do it very successfully, especially for more of the SaaS plays. So we definitely don't discourage it. And we've obviously seen examples like Grab that have managed to scale in several countries. But we do believe that there are home court advantages to being locally focused. And I do think that we do believe that if you want to conquer Southeast Asia, you definitely would have to have a presence in Indonesia. Over half of the Southeast Asian unicorns have a very strong presence here. So I think if you want to go far, you're definitely going to need to cover Indonesia. What I will say is the TAM, the car, where the infrastructure is today, where capital is today, as well as talent, I think... There is support towards locally grown companies. And as I mentioned, the public markets are here and they're ready for it too. So we definitely would encourage our entrepreneurs to, to think about Indonesia first. And if they choose to continue about thinking about Indonesia, we're, we're supportive of that as well. Great. I think one thing before we move on to the next question, you mentioned that you do look into one of your areas of expertise or interest is agri-tech, correct? Yeah. Why don't we quickly double click on that and uh, talk about what are your views and how has agritech evolved through the COVID situation? I think a lot of attention is given to health tech, e-commerce, logistics, just because they were frontline. But I think there has been uh, a number of advancement in the agri-tech space. And obviously, there is an underlying trend of alternative food and vegan preferences for food. So all those things are anyways, I think, have got uh, a lot of attention because of COVID. So can you just double click on what have you seen in the last one or two years? Yep, sure. Happy to happy to spend some time on that. So the way we look at agri-tech, we actually categorize it into two different models, both of which we made investments into, B2B and B2C. So on the B2B end, what's what's happening is it's usually a platform that distributes fresh produce directly from farmers to restaurants, caterers, street vendors, even central markets and other culinary businesses. So the whole idea is to cut out the middlemen in the supply chain to offer cheaper prices, but also bring in stable demand for farmers. And then on the B2C side, we have a, an e-grocery platform that utilizes an agent model to actually help women sell fresh to their neighborhoods. So that's actually the initial growth hack to use an agent. And that's been been quite successful so far. In terms of alternative meats, I have not seen any deals in that space, particularly from Inmet. I think that would be more in the direct-to-consumer space where there's an actual product, an actual brand. We haven't covered that yet. But on the agri-tech space, we've seen a lot of funding come into the B2B, B2C part of of agri-tech. So groceries have continued to scale because of COVID-19. And on the B2B side, a lot of restaurants or actually a lot of suppliers or distributors have actually had supply crunches, which actually provided an opportunity for our B2B uh, portfolio company to actually grab that market share and and create loyalty um, and stickiness for clients that needed that last minute uh, vendor to help source fresh from. So I think those are some of the developments over COVID. Both these uh, models, we've actually seen them scale significantly between 20 to 30% month on month over the last year or so. So it's been quite interesting. And we managed to also help them close, almost close their Series A's as well. So yeah, a lot of activity there for those particular models. And yeah, I haven't seen anything in the alternative meat space. Right. You brought up uh, something specific and definitely something interesting to learn about. You talked about 
specifically working with women on the B2C side in terms of delivering fresh vegetables, right? I think this is, this is very interesting. And is there, is there some specific reason that women are more adept for this industry or it just happened because of the market dynamics? And the reason I'm asking is because in India, I don't know if you have heard of a business called Mishu. Yes. So basically they do social commerce through WhatsApp and so on and so forth, right? And their agenda is really to get women to be their resellers, right? Yeah. Uh, and they want that class of, of retailers to actually, uh, or rather resellers to grow, right? And they have made a very purposeful and thought after decision of doing that. And obviously similar businesses also have followed pursuit. So is there something similar or it just happened by the nature of uh, the nature of the ecosystem within, within Indonesia? That's, that's really interesting that you brought that up. So I always say that the average Indonesian is intrinsically entrepreneurial. Whether you're a man or a woman, we actually see that the side gig economy has grown a lot over the last couple of years, especially because of the growth of e-commerce, right? We see women who are who have to take care of their children at home, start wanting to open an online store, sell beauty products online. But this particular agent model actually streamlines that further because it gives them the tools and resources to be able to do that in the most seamless way. So the housewife profile is only one profile of many agent profiles. So there are other profiles like the water gallon vendors, mom and pop store owners. And yeah, I think those are two, the two main ones. And then the housewives would come as a separate category. So this particular company that we invested in, in the B2Cs, their role is to not only acquire housewives, but train them to be able to acquire more users and also do the last mile delivery. So not only are they incentivized for bringing more customers onto the platform through WhatsApp groups, through their social uh, networks, but also to do the last mile delivery. So they're very much incentivized um, to do that. So yes, we've definitely seen a growth in this model. And it's interesting because that's also what helps income levels go up and allow women to have a side gig and be able to earn incomes for themselves. And then we also invested in a similar, well, uh, yeah, similar model that's more targeted for on sellers who are normally women because this is focused for beauty products. These are sellers that already have presence on Shopee, Tokopedia, and Instagram. And this particular platform helps them procure beauty products without MOQs. So they can literally buy one and sell it on online and, and make a margin from that. So it's just so seamless. So I think digitizing this, this market of resellers is a great way to not only scale your platform, but also expand reach through a low CAC. So it's mutually beneficial for the platform as well as for the resellers and agents. Great. Thank you very much. Before we move into the last 10 to 15 minutes of this conversation, if anybody wants to ask a question, do raise your hand and we'll bring you up. Okay, there's somebody. Got it. Hi, Jif, Jifrai, if I've got that name correct. Yeah, Jifrai, yes. Jifrai, uh, great. Welcome. Do ask your question and before you do that, a quick introduction would help. Thank you. Okay, so my name is Jeffrey. I'm from Colombo, Sri Lanka. So my question is a, yeah. So my question is about the culture of of Indonesia, right? I think it's very different. Uh, I mean, I've been been there a couple yeah. of times, and the, and yeah. the culture is very different to South Asia, right? And there's a lot of trust built uh, between people. I mean, I mean, I've been in the in the in the delivery ecosystem, and I've noticed yeah. some of the models that that we see in Indonesia 
cannot be replicated in, 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 in areas like in South Asia because it works with a lot of trust. I'd love to hear more about that. I obviously was amazed by how things were working there and would love to hear more if you, if you can share anything on that. Um, yeah, sure. I'll try. I'll try and uh, share a little bit from my own personal experience, maybe. So I think one thing I want to highlight for everyone to, to get a, get an understanding about is the fact that Indonesians are inherently social. They, we still trust people more than technology itself. So if you were to, if I was a consumer, I would go online and go on Tokopedia and I want to buy a product. But maybe before I buy it, I'd like to talk to the seller first to just see that the seller is there. So chat is actually a huge function for e-commerce platforms. In the same way in food delivery, I noticed that a lot of customers and food delivery riders or drivers actually want to communicate and confirm the order, even though it's on an app. Very different to when I was in the UK and I would order a particular, say I'd order food, it would just come at my doorstep 20 minutes later. I wouldn't have to confirm it. But there's still a huge element of chat. So that chat is the human human aspect that I noticed that a lot of users um, really like. So that's pretty much on online transactions, online purchasing and, and deliveries and things like that. What's also interesting, and that this is what social commerce is trying to do, um, is hop onto the inherently social behavior that is what we see in, in our community here. So one of our, well, most, most of our social commerce models is actually relying on this connect between the platform and users because right now there is a disconnect between platforms and users. With an agent in the middle, it bridges that trust gap because trust is, is important. So the whole idea of social commerce is to give consumers e-commerce access with choice, with trans transparency, with convenience, but it has to be layered through a deep social element. So I completely agree with you that trust is a huge factor when it comes to technology here in Indonesia. And that's why when we look at a lot of e-commerce platforms here, we want to also ask about how they actually use social as a as an impetus for growth, right? How are you actually innovating with these social elements, whether it's content, agent resellers, community group buying, an influencer model or a team purchase model? How have you actually created a solid growth hacker model through social elements and utilize concepts of community network and followers to actually build that trust? And that's what we've seen today here in local communities. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, just for the audience, I just want to share an example. I think the Gojex, what I noticed was it, it's, a, it's a driver first model, whereas yeah. <laughs> the world it has been a merchant first model. And yeah, that's obviously yeah. telling the driver what to buy and bring it over to you. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yep. So that was a surprise to me. And I, I, I know obviously I work in that space. I found that very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And if you purchase like from, from GoMart on the Gojek app, you can even tell your driver to choose your apples for you. And there's a trust there. You trust the person over the fact that the platform would be able to provide you with, with a good quality service. So that's 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 something that's quite big for consumer businesses today. So I always say you have to find a way to implement that particular behavior onto your platform. Yeah. So my if I if I can have one more question, Malika, uh, I would love to know what's the government I mean I mean Indonesia has has had a very open uh, invitation. What's the government doing to more tech, you know, tech talent coming in or, or for that matter, investments coming into the country? Is there incentives, is there benefits provided? Yeah, yeah. I've noticed 
that they've definitely been a lot more um, lenient with foreign investment and reducing the requirements to actually come in as, as a foreign investor. I don't have the key stats in front of me, but I know that what was on the list of uh, sectors you couldn't invest in, that's actually a lot of that has been removed already. So that's quite good. What's also interesting, we're also seeing a lot of government grants and governments participating in the in the world of venture tech investment. So that's quite exciting as well. And then I think the largest thing right now that we've seen that's been the most impactful is the governments being open to have, having tech com- working closely with tech companies to work on licenses, whether it's fintech or well, mostly fintech, as well as keeping the market open and vibrant to actually allow for tech companies to go IPO. So they've actually um, reduced the requirements to become public. There was a time a couple of years ago where you had to be a profitable company to go public. Now that's not the case anymore. So I think something like that is very helpful to keeping the market open for tech companies and, and providing those exit opportunities encourages foreign investors to come to Indonesia as well, as I mentioned previously. Thank you. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. Akriti, please go ahead. Hi, thank you so much. Your conversation has been really helpful. I don't know that much about the Indonesian market and it's really helped to kind of understand. I come from India and I'm currently in Hong Kong working with a fintech consulting firm in the area of marketing. And something that I was really curious about was when you assess some of these early stage platform ecosystems, how do you assess their, you might be able to assess their business model, but what are some of the things you found useful in assessing their potential for growth when there may be similar kind of when like for example the success would be based on how many uh, people they can get onto that platform and stuff but early stage they may not have that so my first yeah. question would really be how do you best assess that that's a good question yeah we don't always have that into all that traction to actually use to see that the company is able to scale we wouldn't have a sense of what things like wallet share might be or retention might be so that's why we have a strong founder focus because we believe that they're the ones driving the business and they're the ones that know how to execute on the business model we also again as i mentioned look at India, China, Latin America, other emerging markets to actually see what helped them scale. What are some of the growth levers there that was very helpful? And can we actually tap into that here in Indonesia, right? Because it's still a different market. So that's something that we need to spend time on. Another thing that's actually very helpful for us to know is if there are any plans to distribute via partnership, right? So we've seen a lot of newer platforms tap into existing ecosystems, and that actually helps drive growth and reduce things like concentration risk, allows for cross-selling of categories. I'll give you an example to just kind of uh, double-click on that. So one of our fresh produce B2B players that I mentioned would plug into other grocery as well as the, the, the super apps to actually partner with downstream players so they can move their fresh products, uh, produce even better. So what is that additional go-to-market strategy that's going to help you scale? That's something that we can plan for in advance, and that's something we can also assess through looking at other markets, whether it's going to work or not. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. The founders is a huge driver. Um, and also assessing that the market is there and ready for this particular business model. I think that's very, very helpful as well. We do usually encourage our platforms to stay in their core focus and value proposition. But sometimes they can have early plans to add new models 
on top of the infrastructure that they've already built. For example, social commerce consumer companies taking more of a B2B approach to increase volumes through mom and pop stores. We've seen that quite a bit as well. So yeah, I think those are some of the examples where they can propel growth and we can try and look at their existing plans to see if they can uh, scale their, their platforms. Very helpful. Thank you. Welcome. Before we move on and we have... 12 minutes left. We didn't touch touch upon super apps, right? But definitely, I think that's something which is very interesting. Do you see this super app ecosystem of Indonesia different from the rest of the world? And I think the, uh, I would probably first compare it to mainland, which was the grandfather of the super app concept, and then, uh, and then come to Southeast Asia and specifically Indonesia. So do you see any core differences or the way it has been built or the way it has been utilized or consumed? What? I would I would definitely say that the super app uh, ecosystem here has been inspired by China for sure. If you look at GoTo itself, it's, I mean, I remember I saw an article where William, the CEO of Tokopedia, said that it's like Amazon, DoorDash, Uber, PayPal, Stripe combined all together. So it is a powerhouse. So we've definitely been um, inspired by China. I think that something like this, I just want to touch upon how it affects Indonesia. I think it reshapes the competitive landscape of, of this particular region's tech scene. I think now we've, we're definitely seeing a, a bit of a three-way battle between the C-Group, Grab, and the newly formed GoTo group, which um, is super-duper interesting and, and pretty much the largest ever business deal in the country so yeah i think we're lucky to sort of be able to look at china and get that um get that uh, inspiration and be able to kind of double down on fintech it's it's going to become more competitive and more dynamic uh, has it go to has a potential to bring even more better financial solutions to the country's underbanked and unbanked population i think that on the logistics end we'll see more Gojek drivers delivering Tokopedia patch, uh, packages. Merchant partners are going to benefit from tapping into each other's ecosystems. And on the consumer side, there's just less friction between platforms to provide, to have the best convenience and and quality and delivery of goods and services as well. And it also helps with cross-selling. And other sort of just going back to financial services, the sort of buy now, pay later schemes are going to be integrated as well. And that's, that's also going to be a, a really great driver for e-commerce in Indonesia. So I think that we're really lucky to have seen how it played out in China and be able to do the same here as well. And again, a lot of Indonesia's early tech growth has come from regions like Java, so more urban urban cities. I think the next part of this is going to be really interesting. How do you scale beyond Java? How do you uh, go into more rural Indonesia, establish logistics services, establish sort of the right, the right onboarding for payments and really start to include them in the digital economy. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see how that's going to play out. Great. And before we let you go, uh, one, obviously, we do a quick rapid fire. And before that, we did touch upon, you did touch upon or referred to the, the new merger, uh, very well uh, documented conversation between yeah. Tokopedia and Gojek. So what are your views on that? Uh, do you think this is something in the right direction? What are the benefits and how do you see this playing out? 100%. So I think it's definitely very, very beneficial for the uh, for the ecosystem. Actually, the entire ecosystem Tokopedia accounts for almost 2% of Indonesia's GDP and with a combined number of active users of about 
100 million users as well as 11 million merchants. So I think this is basically telling you once again that there is a homegrown advantage. You can tap into other verticals, cross-sell, and literally build a multi-billion dollar business. I think together, they're reportedly targeting uh, an IPO valuation of 35 to 40 billion. So I think that, again, it puts us on the map. It makes Indonesia really look like the powerhouse that it is. And yeah, it's, it's, it's great precedence for the next wave of, of tech companies. So we're really, really excited about it. Great. So now let's do a quick rapid fire, one word or one sentence. Are you ready? Okay. So the hardest thing about your job? Time management. A venture capitalist is in the business of? People. Two sides of the table. Yes. I would recommend everybody to read that if you're interested in investments. It's just, just very, very insightful. 100%. Both sides of the table, sorry, not two sides of the table. Yeah, both sides of the table. And the last question, your most favorite superhero? Michelle Obama. (laughs) I know she's not a superhero, but to me she is. No, Batman is a superhero, has no uh, special powers. Uh, Michelle Obama doesn't have special powers, but she can be... The Batwoman. I'm just making that up. Hundred percent, hundred percent. She's so authentic, and I think I think every woman, you know, wants to be like that. But I think it was a pleasure having you on the AMA. Learned such a huge deal about the Indonesian ecosystem, the venture space, the trends. So would love to have you back uh, sometime again for a deeper discussion in various topics that you guys invest in. So thank you for joining today. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much, Patricia. And again, thank you so much to everyone for participating and sharing your questions. And yeah, hopefully we can get in touch. Maybe there's a way for me to drop my email somewhere. Happy to hear if you guys have any interesting insights you want to share or if you're excited about Indonesia and looking to potentially hop on over and, and work in the tech ecosystem or even start up a, a company as well. I'm more than happy to kind of uh, learn more about you guys. Brilliant. I think there is the option of back channel, so people okay. can actually ping you if they're interested to have a further conversation. Dean definitely is somebody whom you may want to connect as well, because he's looking for some fintech insights. So yeah, anybody can reach out to Malika, uh, Malika through the back channel. So thank you everyone. Thank you for joining in. We will be back with our next AMA very soon. Hope you have a great weekend ahead or whatever is left, and uh, have a good evening. Thank awesome. you. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thank you.